Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And when I say encourage community, what I mean is I believe that human beings are friendly tribal animals. We like to cooperate and collaborate We like to hang out with one another. Look at all the things that we like to do, whether it's going fishing, watching a ball game, doing sewing circles, reading together, eating together. We do all kinds of things together. We like being together. At the very same time, we must be ever mindful of the fact that there are a small percentage of we human beings who are very different, who are avaricious, greedy, dominating predators. These people would have us go back to pre-American revolution and be subjects instead of citizens. These people are the tyrants and the dictators of the world, and we must not ever allow our country to go back to that kind of political system again. We must be ever mindful. In the words of my hero Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we have an esteemed guest, Julie McFadden, a hospice nurse who has been doing some remarkable things in the area of -of end-of-life treatment. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Julie. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Julie, you entered nursing as an intensive care nurse, as I understand, and then you went into hospice work. What caused you to move from ICU to hospice? My experience in the ICU, I started out nursing, never even thinking about hospice. It was never on, it was never on my radar. But the more I was in the ICU trying to keep people alive, which has its own right, of course. It's needed sometimes. But the more I did that, the more years I did it, the more and more I could see that there was a missing link in our society in general with end-of-life care and talking about it and discussing what's really happening with this person essentially dying or dead already in the ICU and being kept alive. And I just thought, man, we need to do this a different way can't keep doing this day in and day out. I was really taxing on me and I just wanted to be a part of something different. And that's what got me started thinking about hospice work. And I eventually just jumped ship and just applied for a job that actually said must have hospice experience. And I didn't, but I just thought I'm going to try it. And I did. And I got the job. And here I am many years later working in hospice. Okay. Tell us about hospice. Tell us about your early days in hospice, your experience, and tell us what really what hospice is. So my early days, it was a big learning curve because I was under, still in the mindset of like, everything needs to be done. So it was a big, it was a big shift. And main thing that I was amazed by and fascinated by when I first started was how little we had to do for the dying body to help it die peacefully. 
It was like just time and time again, just through watching people, I saw how our body had built in mechanisms to like help people do it peacefully. And it was, that was wild to me. Even as a healthcare worker, it's like, I did not know. (laughs) It was like, it was just so amazing. And so that was the first thing I noticed. And what hospice is comfort, what hospice, so many things. And so I could, I I could talk and probably bore you, but in general, uh, if you know you're going to die, which not everyone does, right? Some people die from car accidents or, or they die quickly in their sleep. But if you know you're going to die from a specific diagnosis, it's basically someone choosing to die, what I would say naturally, meaning taking no interventions to stay alive from this disease. And we just help facilitate that and help people die in their home, like you said, with community. I think we're really lacking community in the death and dying realm because it's been taught through generations of like hiding it. We hide it more and more in our society instead of coming together as a group and helping someone just naturally die. And so hospice is an organization that helps people do that, usually in their home, preparing the person who's dying and then preparing the family to help them and take care of them. It's beautiful. So as a hospice worker, you work with one patient at a time. You're not working with groups of patients in a ward, but you're working with them, with their family. And typically, are you working with them more in their home than in the hospital or both? But, so it depends. So I specifically, me personally, I do home hospice, which means the person's in their home and the family does most of the care. So that's one big misconception is that hospice will come into your home and be there 24-7. That doesn't happen. So if you want to be in your actual home, dying there in hospice, your family or someone, you have to pay someone to be there with you, caring for you to the end. And the hospice comes in intermittently and educate and provide you with the things that you need. But there's also in-home hospice, which is an inpatient service, usually in a house, or it's not like cost kind of like a home where there's maybe eight to 12 beds and everyone there is in hospice and there's nurses in that building caring for the people there. And then the family comes in just to be family. I don't do that hospice, that kind of hospice, but that is available in most states. You can choose which one you'd rather do. Let's back up a little bit and mm-hmm. talk about how a person makes contact in order to enter the hospice program? Yeah, so there's several ways. Uh, Usually how it works is someone has some kind of disease. So it's usually some kind of terminal cancer or advanced cancer, advanced heart disease, advanced lung disease, whatever it is. And they've been working with several doctors usually uh, to try to keep them alive as long as possible. And then eventually there gets to a point where the doctor says, listen, we've had all we can do. There's not much more we can do or... There is more we can do, but it'll likely kill you if we keep trying to do it. We think you're at the end of life. We're going to put a referral in for hospice. And then they put a referral in and then the hospice comes and they start taking over. That's one way. Time out. Let me me interrupt. Allow me. Thank you. Yeah. So Uh one important step in the procedure for those our audience is the doctor makes the decision to refer the patient to hospice. Yes. Okay. That's one way. That's the most common way. Okay. That's the most common way. All right. What's another the, way? The second, the second and third way that I like to talk about because people don't know they can do this. Yes. Is they bring it up to their doctor, and that's what I think needs to happen a little more. Is 
I think people don't know that they have the right to say, hey, enough is enough. <laughs> I don't want to keep doing X, Y, and Z. Uh-huh. Or is hospice an option? And a lot of times doctors don't know. Doctors don't always know the criteria. My suggestion there is just ch- just check it out. If that's something you are thinking about or you don't really want to do the treatment that this doctor is saying or you're sick of doing the treatment, you could always ask, bring it up. A lot of times that's all it takes is someone saying, hey, can we at least talk about this? When do you think this is an option or is this an option now? Usually once the person brings it up, the doctor will just say, oh yes, if that's what you're thinking about, I can write you a referral. So that's the second way, you bring it up to the doctor. The third way is you actually just looking into hospice companies and self-referring and calling them and saying, hey, this is what's going on with me. I might want to check it out. I always say this little like jingle, just so people can remember, when in doubt, check it out. If you're in doubt and you want to know what it's all about and if you meet criteria and if you want to go on hospice or your loved one, when in doubt, check it out. You can always self-refer. And when when you either self-refer or get referred by a doctor to a hospice, are these hospices all over the country connected to a central authority or are they all separate hospices? Are they all separate businesses? How does that work? Yeah, Richard, you are good. You are good at asking questions. So that's a great question. So hospice is Medicare driven. So Medicare is our boss. They're used, so every, it's all across the nation, but they're all separate entities, right? So there's private ones, there's nonprofit ones, but we're all still governed by Medicare. So all of us technically should be following Medicare guidelines. And there are strict Medicare guidelines when it comes to hospice because when it was first starting, there was tons of Medicare fraud that was happening with hospice companies because any Tom, Dick, or Harry could start a hospice company back in the day, and it still can happen today. And there was tons of Medicare fraud because they were getting a lot of money from Medicare to do these hospice companies and then not doing what they were supposed to do. So now Medicare really audits and follows hospice companies to make sure we're doing what we're saying we're doing and we're taking their money and doing what we're saying we're doing with the money. So there's good and bad things with that, right? So it's good because we get a lot of help from Medicare. It's bad, bad, I think, because there's a lot of red tape <laughs> for us to get through as a hospice company to provide and a lot of rules. You know, we can provide this. We cannot provide this under any circumstance. It's like we have to follow Medicare guidelines. And then, of course, with that, there are companies that really follow Medicare guidelines and there's companies that don't. And if they get audited, they'll get in a lot of trouble, right? Or usually get shut down. So that's our governing body. It's Medicare. So across the board, hospices, now this isn't always happen, but across the board, hospices should all be providing the same care because we have one boss and that's Medicare telling us what we can and cannot do. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the patient has now been either referred by their doctor or they asked their doctor about it or they them themselves contacted a hospice agency and they have decided they are going into hospice. So now they're in hospice. What does that mean? What happens next? So once they're in hospice, that means that we are their primary caregivers. So they should have a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a home health aide, and a chaplain if they want a spiritual counseling. This group of people is now their main source of healthcare. And we will be in the home. So standard, standard is the nurse should be there at least once a week. 
That's they ha- that has to happen per Medicare guidelines. Once a week, but for they the can't. Yep, once a week. That's the lowest. Now the max could be every day ah. if there's issues, uh-huh. right? So if there's issues, ongoing issues, the nurse has to kind of go out there. We also provide a 24-hour number that the family can call at two in the morning and say X, Y, and Z is happening. I need a nurse to come, and a nurse it should be available to go there. Now the nurse can't stay there. They can't stay for X amount of hours, but they can go and fix whatever's going on. So we provide that. The doctor is very involved. You don't necessarily see the doctor all the time, but the nurse is like the eyes and ears for the doctor. Mm -hmm. The nurse is constantly talking to the doctor. They have a home health aide that can come out two, three times a week to help bathe the patient, keep them clean. The chaplain provides spiritual support. The social worker provides financial support or ideas on how to help with certain finances, get things in order, family dynamics, things like that. Also supply supplies. Right. So like briefs, bed pads, gloves, things like that you need to take care of someone. We provide equipment, beds, commodes, wheelchairs, oh, oxygen. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of get. So what I mostly do is go. I'm the initial nurse that goes to do the initial visit and I try to set up their home so they have all the things they will need. Bed, wheelchair, oxygen. Not everyone needs oxygen, but if they do, I'll order supplies. I provide, I usually put medication in there that they may never use, but we like to have it there just in case. So if they call at two in the morning, my loved one's really agitated. They're acting confused. They're whatever. We have a box of medication aside to provide them with medication just in case. Yeah. So Medicare is providing a team of five, a doctor, a nurse, a home health care person, a social worker, and a chaplain, plus a lot of equipment that's being that's possible, whether it's a bed, whether it's pans, various other things that they need. So yes. the patient is now no longer being treated by their own doctor, trying to keep them alive. They've now transitioned to this team, which is going to be their quote, end of life team. Yes. And our main goal is comfort. So we're not going to, I always say Medicare provides this big chunk of things over here, right? Like thing you just mentioned, they're going to provide that. And it's through Medicare. You don't get a bill. Medicare pays for it. But because of that, you lose everything over here, which is like, you're not supposed to go back to the hospital. You can't get chemo and radiation anymore. You're not supposed to go back and get PET scans or CT scans or like those things are no longer... You can't do both. So you get one or the other. Now you can come off hospice whenever you want. So say you're on hospice and now all of a sudden you change your mind and you want a PET scan or you want to go back to get chemo or you want to see your oncologist again. You can just come off hospice and then go back and start doing that again. You just can't do both. At the same time. Does that make sense? At the same time. Right. If you're an adult, children's hospice is different, but adult hospice is. I see. I see. Okay. So the person has gone off their medical care trying to keep them alive, have gone on to hospice, was just trying to keep them comfortable as they transition to wherever we go next. This team of five is working. You've got a new, a new patient. Julie McFadden is called in. There's a new patient, Mr. or Mrs. X. And you go there. What's the first thing you do as you walk in? First thing I do, me, is introduce myself to the family. I see the patient, introduce myself to the patient, see what I'm working with. I usually look at my environment just to see 
make sure I'm safe and make sure everyone that I know who's going to be there, what the patients. Then I sit everybody down together. As long as the patient's alert and oriented and can kind of it, sometimes they're exhausted or they're confused or they're not even conscious, just depend. But the patient is, I set everybody down who's there, everyone who's going to be part of the care that's there. I set everyone down and I just start educating them about what hospice means. We just went through, I talk a lot about what hospice means. I talk a lot about what their specific diagnosis means, what it looks like, what it looks like to die from that diagnosis, and then what we can provide for them. And I make sure what they want, because I'm not there to sell anything. I don't, I want you to do what you want to do. I just want to make sure you know what you're getting into and and it's what you want. And if it is what you want and you understand, we sign you up that day. And then I go through all the things that I think they need, depending on what they're going through. Now, when you're explaining to them of all the benefits, the team of five and all the things that are possible that you can provide, do you also talk about what, if any, medications your team is going to provide for them? Yes. Yes. So we talk about the medications are already on and if we want to continue those. And then we talk about medications that I think they'll need. And usually what most hospice companies do, everyone's a little different with this, but what most hospice companies do is uh, go through the medication list they're already on, take some off because some don't really matter. And especially if the patient doesn't want to take anything, we're not going to force them to take medication. So it also depends on what the patient wants. And then we'll order a box of medication called a comfort pack. The comfort pack, there's usually eight medications we give everybody. So it's pretty standard. And it's stuff for pain, so morphine, medication for agitation or restlessness, medication for nausea, constipation, secretion. So things in there that we like to have the family prepared for, for all of the just-in cases. And all of those medications don't need to be swallowed. So they're usually absorbed buccally in the gums or rectally. They don't have to swallow the medication. And at what point do you bring in the social worker to deal with anxiety and depression and the various things that both the patient and very possibly the family members are going through. Exactly. So the social worker is usually in there within the first five days. Everybody, I think that's actually a standard. Like they have to be in there within the, I think the first five days of admission uh, just to do an evaluation to see what's needed. Because sometimes it's a financial thing. The family doesn't have a, the family doesn't have the means to have a caregiver there. So we need to look into different organizations that can help them with that or something. We help financially. We help with family dynamics. They can help. So they just do the assessment. Some families need a social worker all the time. Some families don't. So it just depends. And really the whole team helps with the emotional part of death and dying. And the, I think the whole team, we're all kind of equipped to help with that. But in general, it's the social worker and then the chaplain that help that I think address it the most. I missed a question that I had in the back of my mind that just popped forward with regard to uh, medications. Suppose the patient says to you or one of the members of the team, I've had enough. Can you take me out? Or can I take, is there some of these eight medicines you gave me? Is there some combination of them I can gulp and I'll be on my way. I don't know if this will surprise you, but people say that to me a lot, actually. People want that a lot. And I, when so when I say that, one, I usually investigate a little more about why they're saying that because a lot of times people are in too much pain or they're too, there's something that's actually bothering them physically. That, and that's, so that's why they want to get out of here, right? They want to die sooner because things aren't being controlled. So a lot of times 
that is the, I kind of investigate a little more why they're saying that because on hospice, we're aggressive with symptom management. And a lot of times people will come on hospice and start feeling better and feeling more like themselves because one, they're not taking this medication that's been making them sick, chemo or radiation or whatever. And two, we're actually controlling their symptoms. So for a good period of time, they'll feel a little better because we're finally controlling symptoms and they're not taking medication and stuff that's making them feel sick. So one, I try to investigate why they're saying those things. Two, I then, I, then if, I, if it's for no other reason than they actually think they can just take something to die, I usually try to educate about how overdose, even though it doesn't seem like it's hard because of what we see in our society, overdosing on medications is actually pretty difficult, especially if you're taking just oral medications. So I try to educate them that so that educate them about that so they don't just try to take things on their own because it usually doesn't work because we've had patients try to do that and they don't die. They just are asleep for a long time, scare their families and stuff. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, I'm in California. So we actually do have the death with dignity law here where people can end their own life if they meet criteria. So once someone asks me about that, if they say something like, I wish I could just take a pill to end it all. I'm sick of this. I actually am legally allowed to say, oh, you can if you want to. We can provide that for you. Now, the hospice company can't. It's a different organization that can. But uh, and then I'll talk to them about if they truly want to do that, there is medication they can do in a program they can sign up for and they can take medication in their own life. And that's available in 11 different states in the U.S. And what typically are the medications that are used, ministered for the person to end their life? So I don't know if I'm like legally allowed to say the exact ones, but it is. I'll just give a general thing. Well, we can, I might be allowed, but I'm not sure. We can look it up on Google. I'm sure it's not a secret. Okay. Uh, oh, I just know it's a mixture. It's usually a powder. It's two different cardiac meds that will stop your heart. And then two or three different medications that put you to sleep. So you go to sleep first and the cardiac meds eventually kick in and stop your heart. And then prior to that, prior to taking that power, take anti-nausea medication and stuff so you don't throw it up by accident. I see. So, so it's a it's very a peaceful going to sleep transition. Oh, yes. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've watched it. It's very peaceful and pretty quick. Usually you drink the medication. So there is criteria you have to meet. Not everyone meets criteria. It's very specific. But you drink the medication. And the first thing that happens, usually within the first five minutes, the person will be unconscious. So not just asleep. They are they drink it and like are unconsciously asleep within three to five minutes. And then it usually takes about 45 minutes for the rest of the medications to digest. And then it just very peacefully stops our heart. Now, when you were talking before about sometimes when the people come off their chemo or their radiation, heavy duty medications, they start to feel better is that what you mean, we, the words that are used in hospice, the surge and the rally? Is that a function of coming off those other meds? Or what is meant by the surge and the rally at end of life? No, that is different. That's different. Surge and the rally, we don't actually know how or why it happens. Of course, there's theories about hormones being released or adrenaline being released right before the end of life. So we don't but so those are theories, but they're not proven. It happens in about 30% of all of our hospice patients. And it's a very specific thing, very specific. So usually someone's very close to death, meaning they're in that transitional phase where they're almost actively dying, which actively dying means like a few hours to a few days. It's like before they're actively dying. 
they will have this surge of energy and some everyone's surge is different, but it's usually very like obvious. They suddenly can wake up. They suddenly are hungry. They're joking around. Sometimes they're up and walking when they haven't been walking for weeks. They're talking when they haven't been talking in weeks. And then just as soon as it happens, it goes away. So it's like a surge for a few hours, maybe a couple days. If it's longer than that, it's probably not the surge. And then they die. So it's abrupt. Boom, abrupt. Uh, that's different than people just feeling better when sometimes they come on hospice because their symptoms are controlled and they're no longer taking something that makes them feel sick. The surge is a very shocking thing. Uh, and then they die. Oh, I suddenly bet it's after. quite something to witness. Yes, yes. I try to educate families before it happens because it's really hard to tell families when someone's doing so well, like suddenly, hey, just so you know, they're probably going to die soon after this. I still tr- I still do because I want them to know, but I try to educate before it happens. So when it's happening, they can just sort of enjoy it and yeah. be with their loved one. It's so important that you're that honest with them because otherwise they're thinking a miracle happened and the person's coming yeah. back, aren't they? Yeah, yes. And then what is the rally? That's the same. So the they're rally the or the same. surge uh-huh. are the same thing. Real name is called terminal lucidity. It's uh, terminal a technical lucidity. term. Okay, I like that. Yeah. And what is mm-hmm. what are you referring to in hospice when we hear the word seeing spirits? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's the most fascinating. That is the one of the things that shocked me the most as like a scientific scientific person from the ICU. I could not believe how often I saw this. And we'd give these little handout books to our new patients. And of course I would read them. So I'd know what was in them when I first started hospice nursing. I couldn't believe we were educating our families that like this was something that was likely going to happen. It shocked me that I was in our educational books because I was like, wow, I can't believe we were actually telling people. I just couldn't believe it. But then once you're a hospice nurse for a while, you see that, and it's strange because it's usually about three weeks to a month before they die. People will start seeing dead relatives or just dead loved ones. They don't have to be family. Friends, pets that have died. And they're very, the thing with visioning is the people who are seeing the thing are very lucid. They're not dying. They're not dying in that moment. They're still awake and eating and talking and walking, know who they are, fully alert and oriented, and telling you they see their dad at the end of their bed and their dad said that they're coming to get them soon. There's nothing to worry about. And they can't wait to go be with their parents again. And that happens so many times, in my career at least for me, so many times that it's actually hard to think of a specific instance because it happens so much. I would say at least once or twice a week. People are telling me wow. that they're seeing their dead relatives. Wow. <laughs> Very significant percentage yes. of your caseload. Yes. They're, and they're not. Uh, that's the thing is like, if I, I want an explanation too. I, I know enough to know that I don't know. But I do know that it's not. I've seen ICU psychosis. I've seen delirium. I've seen people deme- with dementia who are paranoid and having agitation and things like that. I've seen those things. It's not that. It's always comforting. It's always very clear and very certain. So much so that they're kind of, they're almost like, I, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I, I'm i seeing some so-and-so. <laughs> and they're telling me that we're that they're coming to get me and everything's okay and I feel so comforted by it. That's usually the message. They're coming to get them. I feel so comforted by it. Have you discussed this phenomenon with other hospice workers around the country or around where you work? Yeah, a common known thing. It's not even, uh, it's not even taboo. It's not, it's like something that we have to educate our families about because if we don't, we get many calls from family members saying, 
you guys have to come over here. You have to medicate our loved one. They're seeing people. They're seeing things. We don't know what to do. So we, so it's so common. And I always try to say, hey, this is probably going to happen or this could happen. As long as your loved one's comforted by it, don't worry about it. If they're not comforted by it and they're agitated or they're seeing someone like scary, I would say I think that probably is some kind of like hallucination or paranoia or something. But usually... Yeah. So my whole point is, yes, my colleagues and I talk about it. It's a pretty well-known thing amongst the hospice and death and dying palliative care community, just because it happens so much. And we have to t- we have to tell people about it so they don't freak out when it happens to them. What does visioning in hospice mean? That's what that is. So that's oh, what oh, that's seeing what, dead relatives, oh, that is that's same. what visioning is. That's the same thing, yeah. right? Yes. It's called visioning. Yeah. That's the name for it. Of 100% of the hospice patients that you have treated, what percentage of them are living in fear of dying, roughly? I wouldn't say, uh, so I'd say, oh my gosh, a really high percentage, maybe 70 to 80%, but let me clarify, are not living fully in fear, but have expressed fear have expressed fear. Okay. I'm going to ask that question a different way. Okay. Of 100% of the patients you've treated, what percentage of them are in acceptance and ready on their own to die gracefully? 95%. 90, by the end. 95% are in acceptance. Yes. Not Okay, so here's the thing. This is the biggest thing that I think is so important. They get there. So by the time someone is dying, truthfully, I have seen, I could count on my one hand, the patients I've seen die, die like in fear. I can really, I can honestly only think of one person out of all the people I've seen. So I think it's the book, so the, we were talking about books earlier, the book I'm writing now, which won't be out for another year, but I think I'm going to name the title, and this is working, a working title, I probably should, but instead of nothing to fear, I wanted to say normal to fear. Because what I find is it's normal. It's normal that almost everybody fears death and has has periods of fear and then periods of acceptance. And then what I found is the more people talk about it, even say things that they feel are bad, like I'm afraid to die or I don't want to die or I'm sad to die, that leads to acceptance. And most people, by the time they're dying, in the sense of like two days before death, I would say almost everybody. Except for that, well, like I said, out of all the people I've seen die, one person I can think of. Okay, now I want to back up. I want to mm-hmm. back up to the patient who just either was referred to hospice by the doctor, as you say, or brought it up to their doctor and got referred, or self-referred themselves. They're now in hospice, and it's the early stage of hospice. And Nurse Julie has just made her first visit. Tell me about the fear level amongst those people who are in their first day of knowing that they're in a program which is an end-of-life program and they're no longer going to be trying to save their lives. Yeah, so that's, so I feel like... 80 per, I, and this is me like really roughly guessing, but I would say about 80% of people at that moment express fear. Thank you. Fear or uncertainty. Fear or uncertainty. Okay. And that is the beautiful place 
to be and it's okay. And like, I love talking to people in that space because I think all they need is someone who's comfortable with hearing their fears and concerns because it's normal. And I'm really comfortable with hearing those things. And you can see, this is why I love my job. I can see the wave of relief that goes over people's faces when they are able to express, just express that I feel afraid or I don't know what to expect or I don't know what's going to happen or I don't want to die. And to be able to say those things and not have someone try to like make it better. Just me sitting there listening, being like, wow, yes, I, I understand you're so normal. Everyone says these things to me. The wave of relief that goes over their face just from that little interaction is uh, one of the reasons why I love my job. And one of the reasons why I think hospice is so important and why us, me and you having this conversation is so important. So people understand that like almost everyone's afraid, but they don't die in fear. They don't die like those last moments are not like that. And talking about it really helps. I understand. So they Mm -hmm. start out with a very high percentage, above 80% in those first days of hospice, have fear a certain level. And by the time they're meeting death, an extremely small, almost minute percentage of them are still afraid. Take me back to the early part of hospice and they're afraid. What are they afraid of, Julie? Mostly about what it's going to be like. So what is it going to be like? Like I've known what's death going to be like, what's going to happen after I die, and then leaving their family. Now, what about not knowing what's going to happen is scaring them? In other words, how do they fall down or drop their cards down on... I don't know what's going to happen and I'm scared versus I don't know what's going to happen and I'm thrilled. You know, it's just as good a chance to yeah. be something wonderful as there's going to be something <laughs> right. terrible. But we all know that we all know, even without meeting you and talking to you, we all know that there's a much higher percentage of people who are afraid than a percentage of people who think, oh, boy, I know this is going to be a fun trip. Right. Yeah. How do you think yeah. how do you think that comes about that the uncertainty leads to fear rather than the uncertainty leading to joyful anticipation? I don't know is that just humanity? We'll say so just from my experience people and my my all of my social media are not about faith or having a certain type of religion or anything like that. But I will say people who do have faith in something that it could be any that any of the things Christianity or if they're Muslim or Jewish, but if they have strong faith, those people do seem to be joyful about it, I will say. So faith does seem to decrease fear in most people if they have a really strong faith of an afterlife. they like, oh, I'm not afraid. I'm excited to see. Or I'm excited to go to my home where I know I'm going. But I think... Well, that's that, interesting that the people yeah. with faith do better. I would have guessed that a certain percentage of the people with faith would be afraid that they're going to hell for their sins rather than going to heaven. Very few that I have seen. Very, very few. few. Kind of what, what, where they're going, or at least they have an idea. And I've also seen people with no faith be fine as well. So it's not like only that. Yeah. But I do feel like there are many people who, because of their strong faith, they're almost excited to die. Uh-huh. 
They're usually older too. A lot of people who express more fear are younger, have young children. They have, you know, uh, people who are like 95, they're kind of like me out of here. Most, yeah. mo- really, most people in their 90s are like, I'm good. I've lived long enough. I, re- um, I remember reading a poll by uh, Lee Ankelovich and White. It's a prominent polling operation in this country. And they found that 53% of the American public expect that when they die, they're going to be angels playing harps waiting for them. Really? 53%? Angels playing harps. Wow. And of course, Muslims have this belief that, I don't know, I've never really researched it, but supposedly the males are expecting they're going to be surrounded by these sexy virgins when they die. You've heard about that, I'm sure. I have heard of that, yes. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't have any (laughs) idea about that either. So they come in scared. They leave with acceptance. They're working with your team of five. Do you find that the most challenging part of your work is with the family rather than with the patient? Or is that not the case? In other words, trying to find out how challenging it is because you've got the people around the people and they must be in all different varieties of acceptance, exactly. upset, anxious, who knows what. Yes. It just, it all depends. It all depends. And I will say sometimes the family can be really difficult. Sometimes the patient can be really difficult. It's usually the family, but sometimes the patient can too. And people die how they live. And family and families interact how they've always interacted. So if you, if you don't have a family that can talk and support each other and help each other, and you're not going to have that <laughs> when you're dying either, unfortunately. And if you have someone who is dying, who has always been really negative or really can't ask for help, or those personality traits don't always go out the window just because you're dying. Sometimes they do. Sometimes people can kind of change a little bit. People can definitely change. But I mean, all of those things are still going to be there. So if the family dynamic was strained, in life, it's definitely going to be strained in death. And that can make it harder for the nurse and the team and everybody. But we work, but we're used to it. We are used to that. We're used to coming together as a team and trying to help and meet the family and the patient where they're at. We're not going to force things on them. We have to, some people, we have to meet them where they're at and just kind of slowly work on them to understand what's happening. It just depends. Mm-hmm. But the more people can talk and ask for help, the better it will be. Julie, what else do we want our audience to know about this specialty of end of life care that we're referring to as hospice? What, if anything, have we missed before we move on to the next topic? I think the last thing would be that to me, I really want to change the way we look at death and dying, the hospice world. It's not a, it's not a giving up. You're not giving up because you're on hospice. One lives and dies, every one of us. So if that's the case, what hospice is providing is a peaceful, gentle, natural way to die. It's not about giving up. It's about choosing how you want to die. Because unfortunately, we're all going to have an end. And to me, I feel like, at least for me personally, not everyone would feel this way, but knowing when you're going to die because you have this type of disease, I feel like better prepares you to, you, you choose now how you do it. And that's what hospice is. It's giving you a choice. It's not about giving up or, yeah, it's not about giving up. That's all. Mm-hmm. It's about it's beautiful. It's about transitioning. Yeah. And it's about choosing how you want to do it and being with people you want to do it, 
being with people who you want to be around at the end of life. It's about living. To me, hospice is about living. It provides you a space to live out the rest of your life. That's a beautiful statement. Julie, you went from being an ICU nurse to being a hospice nurse. How did that affect you personally, and how did that change your life? Wow. For the better, I'll tell you that. So people think hospice nursing is depressing, or they think it would be. And at least from my experience with my personality, who I am, being an ICU nurse was really stressful on me. I didn't like it. It was there for many years, a place I didn't like. It was stressful. It was too fast moving. I couldn't hurry up and care. Like I couldn't hurry up. Like you had to hurry up. It didn't feel like I couldn't connect. I felt like we caused a lot of suffering, not for everybody, but for many. Um, And switching into hospice has really given me, I thought I made the wrong choice. I thought I made the wrong career choice. I thought I was going to have to change my whole entire life and do something completely different. But instead, I just listened to my heart and kind of tried something new. And I found my niche. I love love connecting with people. I love the time I get to spend with people. Hospice, to me, is not depressing. Uh, Death is not the worst thing that can happen to somebody. I think suffering is far worse. And to live my day in day life, helping other people and truly, not that nurses don't get into being a nurse to be thanked, but it's not a thankless job. Like I think working in the ICU, it's kind of feels a little thankless. No one's, because everyone's in trauma, everyone's scared, all the families are scared. In hospice, it feels like, like I said, I go in, I talk to these families and you can see the relief on their face. And I'm leaving in there thanking me. Thank you. Thank you. It's unbelievable how much you feel like you've helped someone day in and day out. It feels sacred. It feels beautiful. I just feel it's changed my life because I love my life now. I love it. I would do my job for free. Maybe not 40 hours a week, but I would do it for free, for sure. I will not stop. I will not stop being, knock on wood, I won't stop being a hospice nurse, I, no, matter, no matter what. I can relate to that because I'm 83 and I'm still in private practice seeing patients and I love it and I consider it a yeah. privilege and I do yes. love it. And sometimes I do work for free. Uh, That's a privilege also. We're very lucky that we found something that we love so much. So what, I agree. what that means to me is that when you get together with your friends and your family, or should the reverse, your family and your friends, you're enthusiastic about your work. You're not bringing them do- doom and gloom stories of dying people, but you're excited about what you're sharing with them, aren't you? Yes. Yes. And that's actually... My friends and family are the ones that said, you need to tell people about this because I would tell them stuff that I knew yeah. and they can probably see it in my face and my heart, how much I loved it. And that's that's how I started the social media stuff well, the, because they were like, you need to tell people what you tell us. That's what I was going to ask you. So this is the origin of it. Your friends and family said, you need to tell people about this. So you decided to tell people. And how did it, then something happened and you became very famous, I've been told. Well, it's it's how, wild. <laughs> I know. It must be amazing to you. How did that happen, Julie? Yes. I think I had a couple of close friends whose parents were dying and I helped them through that. And I would say certain things to them during their during this whole process. And those, those two people were the ones that were like, you need to tell people about this. You need to. People don't know this stuff and you're good at explaining it. You should start a podcast or something. People need to hear this. And then I went home to visit my nieces who are 12. Or they're about to be 13 and 12. And they were on TikTok. And I'm 40 years old. Okay, so I'm not on TikTok. 
But I got on TikTok to watch them do all their silly dances and stuff. I didn't even know what it was. But then I started watching TikTok and I saw people, not like me, but people my age having like educational channels where they were like saying, making videos about X, whatever information they could say. And I'm like, I'm going to try that. I'm going to make videos about death and dying and see what happens. And four days later, a video went viral and it just never stopped. So uh, this is so exciting. (laughs) How long was the video that you made? One minute. And did you do it at home on your iPhone or on a computer? Yes. It wasn't like like you hired a professional pro. No, you should see the video. It's ridiculous now that I look at it. I can't believe people liked it. (laughs) You you, you did a one-minute video, and when you Uh say it went viral, that means like, what, hundreds of thousands of people watched it? Yes, hundreds of thousands of people watched it. How did you know where to put it after you made it? It was on, I knew I was going to use like the TikTok app, which again, like I didn't really understand, right? But I knew I could make a video and then you just upload it to a page. And I did that. And I did three videos prior to that one. And like my friends saw those videos. So like three people saw those videos. And then the fourth video, hundreds of thousands of people saw it. And then because of that, they started following my page. And then I just kept making videos. I was like, oh my gosh, okay. Well, I guess people are listening to me. And now I have over a million followers. That's what I, I read about that. You have over a million followers. <laughs> and so do you keep making videos on hospice or you branched out into other things that you're sh- I mean, not talking to them? It's mostly hospice. No, it's, it's mostly death and dying. It's not necessarily yeah. all hospice. But it's mostly death, death and, and dying. dying stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You haven't stooped to telling them what you're having for breakfast. Oh, they don't care. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> yeah. And then because of TikTok, I just went on all the other social. I went Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And I feel like I got so crazy lucky or maybe the world's just ready to kind of about people started following me there too so now i have all these different platforms and then i got on podcasts and it's just been really amazing it's been i'm so happy that the world seems to be wanting to wake up and also change the way we look at death and dying people are interested makes me happy makes me happy too because what's so exciting about your work going viral is that you're going viral about a topic that as you say is going to affect every single one of us. And it is so important. And I was kidding around about saying, you're not telling people what you had for breakfast because all this stuff (laughs) on Facebook and all these social media, I went with my dog to the park and he stood on his head. That's very nice, (laughs) but who cares? But to have somebody go viral with with a message that is so important and can do so much good, because as you pointed out in this interview, Going into this, an extremely high percentage of us are scared. Yeah. And then they go through the hospice program and an extremely low percentage are scared as they actually transition. And for that, I applaud you for both going viral with the social media and for the work you're doing. It's been really great having you on Mind, Body, Health and Politics today, Julie. Thank you so much. You're a great interviewer. You have great questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being interested and spreading the word. I appreciate you. You're welcome. And for all of you in our audience, Julie McFadden, M little C, capital F-A-D-E-N, go anywhere on the social media and you will learn more in depth about end of life transitioning and dying gracefully. And thank you, dear listeners, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please 
Go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. You can look at the archives of prior programs. I hope you'll subscribe because we are listener-supported. I hope you'll take a look at my two recent books, Psychedelic Medicine and Psychedelic Wisdom, which was just released a few weeks ago. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness.